There's been a popular swirl online recently telling us that the word homosexuality wasn't in the Bible until recently, and therefore homosexuality is okay. The basic argument is outlined by Ed Oxford in an article that I'll place in the uh, description. But the fundamental mistake with this general line of argumentation and that Ed Oxford is putting uh, in this article is that he places basically all of his weight on a few modern translations, secondary sources. And by modern, I mean post-reformational. He isn't dealing with primary sources. He's only dealing with translations. It's, it's a wild uh, way to argue, and uh, it's getting a lot of traction in certain areas of the internet, um, and it's a ridiculous argument, but I figured I would uh, take some time and point out what uh, is going on here. All right, so first of all, he uses a German translation which translates uh, the word for homosexuality uh, as pederasty, basically, those who lie with young boys. Um, and so the primary problem here is that a translation doesn't carry as much weight as a primary source. Primary sources are the highest authority when it comes to translations, not translations. Um, so... The, if we go to the primary sources, the Greek and the Hebrew, say of Leviticus 18.22, uh, the word there just simply means male, both in the Septuagint and uh, in the Hebrew. Arsenos is uh, what's in Leviticus 18.22 in the Septuagint, and then uh, Zakar, uh, which is uh, the Hebrew, the Masoretic. And it's the same with Leviticus 20.13. The words mean male, a male lying with a male like a woman, which is homosexuality. So the fact that the word homosexuality doesn't uh, appear until recently is immaterial. It's just a, it's just the way translation works. It's the way uh, language evolves, but the concept is still there. In 1 Corinthians 6.9, the word is arsenokitai, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.9. Uh, that word means homosexual, a man who lies with another man, or a man better if we want to get super wooden about the compound nature of that word. Every Greek lexicon I checked affirms that this word is homosexual, uh, with a couple of them making the addition that it can also mean pederast. So the lexical range is extended to both homosexual in the conventional sense, uh, where it's adult male on male sexual activity, and homosexual in the pederast sense. It can extend to all of these. The word doesn't give exclusive exclusivity to pederast behavior, but rather encompasses homosexual behavior in all its forms. Uh, adult male to adult male and adult male to teen uh, male or boy male. Uh, this really is... It's the end of the conversation. I don't know how Oxford can be taken seriously uh, when the Greek and the Hebrew are so clear. It's, it's not even an argument. But Oxford makes a big deal about the word homosexual not appearing until modern times, and that's fine. Uh, the words in the primary sources still mean homosexual activity. Uh, but older translations, like the, the King James, they would translate that as abusers of themselves with mankind, or them that defile themselves with mankind, which was understood to mean homosexual activity in all its forms. The word homosexual not appearing until modern times doesn't matter because the meaning of the older translations and the primary sources themselves mean homosexual activity. 
He then makes references to Swedish and Norwegian translations. Again, no reference to primary source material. The Greek and the Hebrew have authority over translations of the Greek and the Hebrew, or in some cases, translations from the Latin Vulgate, which then makes it a translation of a translation. <laughs> so he's dealing with, with translations way down the road. Uh, and we don't do exegetical work from translations. They can be helpful. But we, we certainly privilege the primary source material. We do it from the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages. Furthermore, if Paul wanted to make the prohibition exclusive to preterast, uh, he, he could have used a word for that very thing, pederastes, uh, a boy lover, but he doesn't do that. Oxford rightly acknowledges that pederasty was a feature in many places of the ancient world, especially among the Greeks and the philosophical schools. But again, this doesn't do anything to prove the exclusivity of pederasty addressed in these words. Uh, it simply encompasses them too. And he makes a sweeping statement of the ancients thinking it was just pederasty involved in the four passages that he mentions. When we have evidence of ancient Christians making clear reference to the illicit nature of homosexual activity that isn't exclusively pederast in nature. Uh, Eusebius, he says um, in his proof of the gospel, having forbidden all unlawful marriage and all unseemly practice and the union of women with women and men with men, he, meaning God, adds, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for in all these things the nations were defiled, which I will drive out before you. And the land was polluted, and I have recompensed their iniquity upon it, and the land is grieved with them that dwell upon it. Tertullian says, the Christian man confines himself to the female sex in his apology in chapter 46. So pederasty was a major indulgence in the ancient world, and the fathers wrote against it as well, but it still doesn't mean that adult homosexual relationships were therefore not included in these passages. Oxford says, so for most of history, most translations thought these verses were obviously referring to pederasty, not homosexuality. And this is simply not true. So far, he's demonstrated in his article that it's true for three post-reformational translations. Three modern translations are not most of history. He cites two from the 1800s and one from the late 1600s. He's looking at translations that are around 200 to 300 years old, and that's ignoring 1600 years of Christian history and translations. And we also have modern Reformational era, uh, era translations that don't translate it this way. The Spanish uh, translation, the Sagradas Escrituras of uh, 1569 translated uh, Ars as those that lay with males. Uh, Oxford goes on to say, since most people haven't studied Greek or Hebrew, they have no concept of challenging a translation and any potential errors that may have occurred during translation. Well, I have. I'm not an expert, um, and many others who are way more skilled in the languages than myself have, and they've come to traditional interpretations in their conclusions. And he didn't even make his case from the Greek or Hebrew. He just adds it as an addendum towards the end of the article. He makes his case from the German, Norwegian, and Swedish translations. But he's right. Yeah, translations can be challenging, and there are potential errors and so forth. But that's not what's going on here. Let's, let's give him the argument, though. Let's say, for the sake of argument, let's grant him his thesis that, f that four out of the six clobber passages, as he states them, are about pederasty and not homosexual acts between adult males. Well, that still leaves the two other clobber passages. On his own admission, 
And uh, so we have two other clobber passages which he uh, wasn't able to argue for an exclusively pederast meaning. Which means, even if he's right, the Bible would still affirm homosexual activity as unlawful. I'm not totally sure uh, what two other clobber passages he's referring to, but one I imagine is Romans 1. Paul gives us a survey of mankind's descent into idolatry, saying they were not thankful to God, the Creator, and instead worshipped the creature instead. He goes on to describe homosexual activity as an unlawful result of this. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1, uh, 26-27. And uh, the, the Greek there is arsenes and arsenin, uh, men on men. Nothing to indicate disparity in power relationships exclusively. Nothing to indicate an exclusive adult male to boy relationship. If you wanted to indicate that, if Paul wanted to indicate that, he could have easily put in a word, pederastes, uh, to indicate boy or young man. But he doesn't do that. The second and third um, is probably Jesus's confrontation with the Pharisees over marriage and divorce, which appears as parallel accounts in uh, Mark and Matthew, where Jesus says, have you read, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then in Mark, he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The primary concern that Jesus has here, uh, and the Pharisees are, are trying to bring up, is uh, with respect to divorce and remarriage. Uh, Jesus says divorce and remarriage is adultery, but he grounds his commands in the creational order from the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The lawful setup for sexual activity throughout scripture, even in the Old Testament, is within marriage between a male and a female. However, in the Old Testament, after the fall, people deviated from the creational standard by permitting divorce and also by committing polygamy. But what Jesus is doing here is doing away with all of that, doing away with divorce and remarriage, polygamy, and by reasonable inference, by good and necessary consequence, homosexuality. Though homosexuality was always understood by the Jews to be unlawful. It wasn't even a debate. It's not what's being discussed here, but we can still apply it. So um, it's not explicitly addressed, but it still applies. The prescribed standard that Jesus refers to is rooted in the creational beginning, male and female. So this precludes male and uh, male marriage. It's an inference drawn by good and necessary co consequence. As with many things, we don't need explicit command to deduce prescriptions, especially, especially when Jesus is doing just that. He points to a standard, the creational standard, then deduces a prescription. Uh, but we do have explicit command in numerous places, despite Ed Oxford's attempts to argue otherwise. But in keeping with this exercise of granting his thesis, we still have these other passages, Romans 1 and the two dominical sayings, and the Genesis account, precluding the lawfulness of homosexual activity in marriage. So, in summary... Proper biblical exegesis is done by consulting the primary sources, the Greek and Hebrew, 
Oxford doesn't do this, and the general argumentation doesn't do this. Two, the Greek and Hebrew are unambiguous about the unlawfulness of homosexuality. Three, Paul could have used a word which meant pederasty, but he didn't. Four, later translation, like the Spanish translation of the 16th century, translates this word as lying with males. Five, even if Oxford is right about his claims by his own admission, two other verses still prohibit homosexual activity. Six, Jesus shows us that the creational order is the standard of sexual arrangements, uh, which is heterosexual marriage. Seven, uh, I didn't mention this until now, but an appeal to natural law would be fitting here too. Thomistic arguments would also supplement how to understand these passages. That apart from divine revelation, natural revelation would also teach us that homosexual activity is unlawful, given what the, te uh, the telos is of reproductive organs, etc. But I understand that natural law has fallen out of favor in modern secular academia, so I don't expect it to have as much weight with uh, the kinds of people putting forward these arguments, but neither do the divine revelations either. I only offer it as a supplement to divine revelation and realize it's outside of the immediate purview of, Ox of uh, Oxford's article. I'm sure there are better, better arguments and more considerations out there by capable scholars who maintain the traditional readings. This isn't really an area of major interest for me, uh, so I wouldn't know who the best are, but I'm sure you could find them. All right, thanks. Have a good one.